Welcome to the TransAsia in the World podcast. I'm Galen Poor, and I'm joined today by IGA Schur. Today we're speaking with Professor Thomas Mullaney from Stanford University. Professor Mullaney is the author of Coming to Terms with the Nation, Ethnic Classification in Modern China, and most recently, The Chinese Typewriter, A History, which is just part one of a two-part project that tracks not just the adaptation of these new technologies to the Chinese language, but really the dawn of a new era in language and communication that he has said is as big as the invention of paper. So as we begin our series on the history of science and technology, we'll talk to Professor Mullaney about some big picture questions about the field as a whole, and also discuss his own research. So welcome, Professor Mullaney. Thank you for having me. So the first question I wanted to ask you about was kind of big picture question. As scholars of uh, history of science and scholars of Asia, like what these two things have to say to each other. So. What does the history of science have to offer to historians of Asia or Sinologists? And also, what does the study of Asia have to offer to historians of science, where really studying Europe and North America dominates? You know, when you're in both fields, it's easy to feel like a minority who has to explain what you're doing to the larger field. So, uh, yeah, what do you think about that? That's a great question. Well, I I can think about my own trajectory and experience. So I did, I did my graduate work uh, at Columbia, and <clears throat> I was in uh, the history department, Chinese history, uh, but I very early on gravitated towards, or maybe not towards, but my reading list very quickly began to incorporate literature that we would now think of as history of science and the social construction of knowledge and technology. And uh, I know for myself what it had to offer, which I think is true for Asian studies, but I also think it's true for other regional fields, is a kind of rigor with regard to the question of constructivism. And uh, so my dissertation, my first book, was one way of describing it is uh, a study of the construction of identity, construction of ethnic identity. And, um, but what anyone knows who works in the literature of asking how identity forms, how do national identities, religious identities, and so forth form, that the constructedness of identity is taken for granted. If you're, if you're in a room with undergrads or grad students uh, maybe not maybe not freshmen, but but anyone who's sort of been around the block a few times and you say race is constructed or yeah. gender is constructed, you'll kind of everyone will is nodding in agreement um, and uh, and just my my I'm a slightly I'm a, I'm a I'm a bit of a contrarian person in the sense that when I'm in a room where everybody is nodding in unison I get very nervous mm. because it feels as if even if I think that what people are nodding to I agree with there's just something that makes me nervous when everyone is quick to take a concept which if you really interrogate it is a very complex statement to say that gender is constructed or race is constructed or identity is constructed you would want there to be a little bit of spirit in the room of wait slow down the tape what do you mean by that but I think with regard to especially questions of identity formation, that process very rarely happens. Maybe once upon a time it certainly happened, but basically the theorists 
whose shoulders we all stand on now, have done such a good job of cementing, I think, correct, you know, correct interpretations, correct analyses, that we kind of feel like, okay, we don't have to worry about that or rehearse it anymore. And, um, but we do have to rehearse it as students and researchers. Like every one of us, yes, we, we, are, we are generationally living. You know, we, we grow up in certain decades and we build upon the, the stuff that has been done generationally before us. But we're also human beings who are born on a particular day and die on a particular day. And we, uh, we, we do need, the, I mean, that's what education in part is, is the recapitulation or movement through sets of things that are already done, like said and done, in order to grapple with it with ourselves and have a chance to think critically about it. Whether the outcome is, I totally agree with this and I'm glad that I rehearsed it, or wait a minute, there's something that someone missed and I'd like to... So this is all to say that uh, I, I, I got into the history of science literature, I think, at that point, because it, it is a literature where, obviously, questions of constructedness are also dealt with, but where the things that are supposedly are being called constructed are ones that it's not like obvious. So, you know, mm. accuracy, missile guidance systems, the quark, you're going to get way more pushback when you say subatomic particles are constructed mm. uh, as opposed to just simply there and, and discovered or oxygen or... Uh, and so because there's... because the authors themselves in their own scholarly trajectories um, have had to face pushback of saying like, no, I don't, I, I don't buy that on face value. I don't buy on face value that oxygen is a construction. Hmm. Uh, that they've actually, I think, in my view, had to go back to their, their toolkit, their, their, if they were chefs, go back to their knives and sharpen them better. Like, make, hmm. like sharpen their tools, think about how to use their tools. They can't be sloppy. So to me, it was like I really enjoyed... Uh, I really got into this literature because um, there was this dimension, I think Latour puts it this way, that to call something constructed is not to call it fictional. You know, a building is constructed, but it is real at the same time. And this, and so, and that really, when I was thinking through the construction of identity in, the, in this case, the People's Republic of China with regard to non, you know, ethnic minorities in China, uh, it allowed me a language, it gave me a language that I could use that when I talked to someone and I said, listen, such and such group in China that is now officially recognized is a constructed identity. And if their reaction to that was, oh, so you think it's a fiction, you think that there is a real identity that's being subordinated or, or written out of existence. And I could say, wait a minute, actually, yes, there are identities that are being written out of existence, but hold on there. By my calling that identity category constructed doesn't mean that people don't live and die for it, that yeah. it isn't really real. And, um, and this isn't to say that theorists of identity, race, and so forth, identity categories don't do this, but few, it feels like fewer do it than have to do it within the realm of history of science and technology. And so um, that's, that was the first... It, 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 it really forces you. You have no choice but to think through what that word construction means um, in a kind of rigorous way, and yeah, and not and not to assume that you're that when you call something a construction that you are calling it a figment of imagination. 
so in terms that's that's kind of what I think for me what history of science at the outset really had to offer me or challenge me to think about now in the in the reverse like what does Asian studies broadly writ have to offer the history of science I mean I think in the the classic sort of like half most recent half century is to challenge just overwhelming Eurocentrism. I mean, yeah. this is sort of normative idea of what these terms mean and um, where did everything begin and, you know, and, and, and uh, notions of origins and disseminations. So, and, and this is, a, of course, you know, the kinds of challenges that are offered back to the Rome, the capitals of, of the Romes or capitals of history of science by serious scholars of the history of science outside the Western world is, is uh, you know, to use that conventional kind of phrasing, isn't just more history of science. It actually requires, if, if historians of science within working in the West uh, are listening closely, um, it should inspire and prompt them to do their work differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, there's, there's too many examples probably to list to, to sort of drive that point home. But I, I think that it forces them, it, it undermines maybe undeserved pillars that they probably were resting on uh, and said, you know, you can't, you can't lean on that anymore. Um, that thing that you thought was a pillar, a normative pillar, is not when you when you look at it from a global perspective. It is it is a particular. This is not universal. What you're talking about, it is quite particular. It's quite provincial. It's quite parochial, or whatever the example might be. So try again. Um, mm. Don't give up on what you're doing, but try again without relying upon Eurocentric norms and assumptions. Uh, and I think that's I think that's happening. I mean. I don't think there's any, I don't know that I've ever met like an, uh, an historian of early modern science that doesn't seriously deal with the early modern history of science, you know, working in what we now think of as Western Europe or the United Kingdom or that doesn't, uh, isn't reading stuff on East Asian science, Islamic yeah. science. And I think uh, Ottoman, I mean, Ottoman studies is just, just phenomenal Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think it's far more normal for those things to be on graduate reading lists or part of the part of the load um, you know in ways that were not was not true um, maybe not that long ago yeah well that actually leads into my second question which is about um, grand narratives Mm. so uh, Joseph Needham I think can really be claimed to be the one who brought non-western history of science into the mainstream um, and like you said, uh, I think without him, it probably wouldn't be normal that people studying Western history of science would begin with some like study of non-Western places. But the big narrative that he that undergirded a lot of his work was the Needham question of, uh, despite having so many um, achievements in science and technology far before the West did, um, China and East Asian countries did not. Uh, create modern science and uh, it was a question I feel like he n- didn't really answer but uh, motivated a lot of the scholarship from that time from the 1950s onward and I'm wondering what you make of this grand narrative if you see other narratives to replace it can we move beyond that question mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think I'm, some critics of the question say that you know, asking why China didn't develop, you know, didn't have the scientific revolution, is like asking I forget I forget what the quote is. Is like asking why why wasn't I in the why wasn't I on the front page of the New York Times today? It is the it is it is asking a counter you know uh, counterfactual and so but at the same time and I think it's I'm, I'm glad that you pointed out it it as flawed as the question may have been from the standpoint of building a problematic building a, a complex a question structure that it was just unbelievably generative um, if you ever yeah. have the chance or if anyone any of your listeners ever have the chance to spend any time at the the Needham Institute that had that, that that holds uh, his papers and also, to me, the most, some of the most exciting stuff is his correspondence with this incredibly large network of interlocutors who were certainly, obviously, the contributors to this this project, but also people that just simply knew the project was was happening and kind of wanted to be part of the conversation, or they were maybe secondary, tertiary experts in particular fields that. Um, wanted to dive in and give their say on biochemistry or on you know metallurgy or whatever it might be, or that that Needham and the and others kind of wanted to consult with. That it was just incre- I mean, and and it and it's so many of the um, you know massive names now in in um, in Chinese history, but also in other histories of history uh, uh, kind of global uh, global history. That it was an incredibly generative. Uh, problem and 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 I and I and I think on that front that's what that's kind of its redeeming quality yeah it, it, it is a even though it's a poorly built question at some at some level it's such an expansively poorly built question that in order to try to answer it you do end up generating an incredible archive that 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 then makes possible a whole other set of questions which I think is your real question like what might these other questions be um, so I, I, I think that the kind of credit where credit is due is almost the administrative labor and the kind of logistics work that Needham and this team did. I mean, I think some of the questions that emerge, one broad family of questions that emerges, I think falls within the category of, of what, we're, what, what, what is often discussed as a kind of non-normative non-normative approaches to the history of knowledge or science. Like, my, my, my job as an historian of science is not to be the judge of the veracity of the subject matter that I'm looking at. So if I'm, if I'm looking at histories of theories of the body or, you know, and the structures of the body, when I encounter, or cartography is a great example, when I, when I encounter a continent in the wrong place, or when yeah. I when I encounter a projection system that is a that is a unacceptable distortion, and it is wrong, that it is my job to sort of mete out justice of who got to the answer first. I think I think the the prevailing mode of history of science has been for a while now that that is not the job of the historian. The job of the historian is to sort of f- f- navigate their way into. Um, a worldview, um, a set of interlocking knowledge systems, a set of interlocking worldviews and ways of, of fashioning truth um, and trying to understand understand things through these kinds of terminological you know, dimensions. Like that's the job. The job is not to say, 
why didn't some car- map maker realize where France was? Right. Like mm-hmm. now, that's my question. Um, that's a that's a that's a unproductive question. And and there and there and the better one is like, what 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 are the what are the sort of ambient conditions and starting points of like one of the many questions? What is it? What are the ambient kind of assumptions and models of the world that someone living in this place and time would have had and 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 to the extent that the visualization of the world that is being produced by this person is is kind of in line with prevailing ideas, what does that tell us? What what does it mean to see the world in this particular way? And then let's say that you discover that a particular kind of map making technique is is in its time and place would have been jarring and new and and strange and iconoclastic. It, 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 and, and it's a departure from what would have been the prevailing model. Well, that rupture is actually far more interesting than saying, wow, they had two chances to get the map right and they still got it wrong. Like that's, that's, that's actually taking the complexity and nuance of human experience, which we're trying to get at and just sort of flattening it back over and over again into like, is it right? Is it right? Did they get it right? And it's also a hubristic, like overconfident, idea that of course we have it right and we're waiting for we're waiting for the people in the past to become us um, which is again what history and historians should in my view and I think in the view of many should not be about should not be doing and so um, when I think of you know how to make the how to make our present how to make our assumptions about the present actually useful for the study of the past when I think of um, science I there are certain things that fall inside that category for me, and then there are certain things that definitely do not fall in that category for me. Like I, if I pick up a work of, on the natural world or on the human body, I'm, I'm unsurprised if I see certain content, and I would be shocked if I found something else. But then if you, kind of, you, you, you travel back far enough in time and suddenly you pick up some sort of work and you, and you realize, wait a minute, my my taxonomy, my way of categorizing the world is clearly, clearly is not this particular person's way of categorizing the world because they put things together that I would never put together. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, and what does that tell me about, because uh, th- then you can start to ask when, then it is a slightly more meaningful question to say like, wait a minute, when did my categorization of the world like come into being? So you can ask questions that are both Kind of indigenous to that world, like what is what is this person's way of categorizing the world? Like what yeah. goes together? What is apart? And say, at what point does that person's way of categorizing the world break down and get replaced by something else? And what are the forces that 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 led to the breakdown of this way of viewing the world? And I think that these are the kinds of questions that people get to ask when they they give up this really boring question of the judgmental question. Yeah. Of is this particular historic person like me or not like me? And the example of the the typewriter is uh, shows that so beautifully. There was clearly a, a successful and unsuccessful model that was totally based on the English language. That was like you said, kind of a hegemony of mm-hmm. what a good typewriter should be. And um, so, yeah, by studying uh, its progress or its uh, development in China. You're really finding a different way towards like technological success, or kind of making us question what we thought of as successful and a failure, mm-hmm. right? In the development yeah, of these I mean, technologies. Yeah, I think that I think 
so cycling back to you know the research that I that I work on with with the work on Chinese typewriting and other forms of uh, information technology roughly from the 1800s onward I mean one thing that has been true f for me and my work is that for a variety of reasons th th I'll put it this way when you study when you study a technology that explodes spreads everywhere like becomes the dominant thing um, ends up in every household changes changes everything about the changes the nature of X Y or Z uh, you know it, those those kinds of game-changing technologies are attractive targets for for scholars but there's also a danger in them in that it's uh, a it comes it sort of arrives already pre-justified. Like no one would ever, no one would ever ask a person, "Why would you want to study the history of IBM, or why would you want to study the history of Google, or why would you want to study the history of Apple?" Um, and um, because it comes pre-authorized by its impact, and so yeah. these sort of impact-based histories of technology that. Uh, that that not only not only get let people off the hook, and to doing that intellectual work of saying like oh, no 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 I do have to justify why I want to do this 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 uh, the study of this admittedly unquestionably famous and impactful whatever company technology, but for me more importantly is that it can also get the author get the scholar too wrapped up in the history of impacts of things. Uh, movable type is a good, I think, is a good totally. example. Mm -hmm. yeah. Movable type is a good example. So, movable type obviously is not invented in the Western world, but it has, but it's, but it's, um, but its its experience in its early years in the Western world is unquestionably like a, phen a phenomenal impact in, in in so many so many different ways. And so, if you're going to jump into the history of movable type printing and its invention and dissemination, you know, in mines and then into through the trajectories of the different printers that spread out and so forth and so on, the way in which the problem is almost preset for such a scholar super magnetically draw them into questions of impact. And it's like, wait a minute, slow down for a second. Um, can we spend a little bit of time just thinking about what went into the process of thinking through, uh, well, a few things. One is, uh, what must have gone on in the minds of those who were engaged? Not everyone invented this stuff. There weren't like, you know, a thousand Gutenbergs competing uh, to be the first to do this. There were a small pockets of of individuals who, what, were beginning to think of the written word in, in 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 through alternate lenses or through alternate modalities. That made them think, or and made them bring together different areas of practice, like uh, goldsmithing and jewelry making, and yeah. and wine presses and stuff. And like maybe we can, and you know, maybe we can change the the, the recipe for ink, and the, you know, sort of bring together these different artisanal practices, and to bring writing and language, uh, writing, you know, out of the realm of scriptoria and quill, um, you know, tilted tables and parchment and so forth and so on and say 
you know, how about we think of it as existing in these exploded modules that we store in little boxes? And that is not obvious. Like, why, what, what, go, what is the thinking that goes into it? What are the alternate ideas that people may have had along the way to that thing that we know becomes the thing that spreads? Like, can we slow down before we get all swept up in impact? Yeah. Can we stop for a second? And that's something that was a luxury for me. I, my book, Chinese Typewriter, couldn't be the history of impact. Right. Because, there, I mean, let's face it. There were not hundreds of millions of Chinese typewriters sold. That, that's not where the action is. The action is in people mulling over and suffering over not just what the answer to this question is, but how to even ask and pose the question in the first place. And there's disagreement on that of like, what is the problem that we're trying to solve in the first place? And spending, and, and how should we rethink how we think about what writing is and what characters are, and for that matter, what all writing is, and what, and what a typewriter could and should be, and all these sorts of things, even before the first, the first machine rolls off the assembly line. Mm-hmm. And I, for one, would love to see, and maybe it exists, and maybe I'm just ignorant of it, but I would love to see someone who is a hardcore kind of historian of print technology in the Western world to say, like, you know what? My book is going to end with the, you know, end with the first folio of, of, of the first printing. Like, I want to know all of the kinds of reconfigurations of thought and stuff and that sort of debates and things and to, to the extent that I can reconstruct it with the materials that I have and I'm going to end it where everybody else seems to pick up. Yeah. Um, same thing with the Western typewriter. I mean, it, there were so many sold. It changed so the games in so many different avenues that it's almost impossible not to just kind of almost skip over the typewriter and get right to business history, gender history, you know, my next question will bring our conversation closer to your work on the Chinese typewriter and how it's related to the technology, history of technology in general, which I specifically want to hear more from you regarding the position of instrument in the history of technology and science, as this topic has also been addressed by a famous book, The Leviathan and Air Pump, which is the one of the founding book of STS, uh, which refers to um, science and technology studies. It looked beyond the scientist and focused on their instrument here, which is um, the air pump, and shows how it legitimize the, the, the knowledge making of experimental science and how it, contri- it contributed to creation of a new set of uh, scientific language. So in the 2011 new introduction to this book, which I found very interesting because Shaping and Schaefer bring up another technology that they think had a similar profound impact on history the typewriter. In your approach to the Chinese typewriter, you actually came up with this term of the technolinguistic to refer to a, to a new dimension in which Chinese captures can be presented. So do you see the Chinese typewriter would typewriter as uh, in general as a, an instrument? What do you think is the position of the instrument in general and um, the, chi- the Chinese typewriter in specific in the history of uh, science and technology? I think the question of whether or not it, it is an instrument or not um, is a scalar question in the mm-hmm. sense that if 
if you're if you're considering if you have the the machine in front of you, let's say you're let's say you're you're like me and you wrote a book about this stuff and you, and you've been staring at them for long amounts of times and thinking about them, then no, and the, because they are as objects really an assemblage of lots and lots and lots of different components, mm-hmm. whether material and physical or kind of cognitive and theoretical, meaning mm-hmm. like. I don't know the way the way that you arrange 2000 around 2500 characters mm-hmm. on the tray bed of the machine taps into for example deeper histories of taxonomy of how do you cate- like how do you categorize chinese characters in a dictionary or in a movable type tray or anywhere mm-hmm. and so it spills like the that just that one part of this this object spills out beyond the bounds of the object and is inexplicable without talking about stuff that falls way outside of the object and uh, and, and and you could sort of dissect and think about lots of different pieces of the typewriter in that way and so what it becomes is sort of a I don't know a kind of a kind of knot at the center of a whole bunch of threads that kind of go off in all different directions a kind of tangled little thing and that if I draw a dotted line around it's like oh that's a Chinese typewriter that's that's what this object is but really if I want to understand it I have to think of it as this um, as this assemblage or entanglement of a bunch of other stuff that have nothing to do with typewriters per se Mm -hmm. they might have to do with the way dictionaries are organized or might actually relate to something about the history of telegraphy or you know or bodily embodiment and so forth and so on but I can but then let's let's think of a different scale let's think of um, Let's be a little bit less precious about focusing on the typewriter, um, and let's let's think about let's think about the QWERTY machine for a second. So we're not stu- I'm not sitting here and I'm not writing about the QWERTY typewriter anymore. I am writing about um, I'm writing about the offices of the national census uh, that led in the United States in year X and. Um, and what I'm what I'm studying now is is the history of surveys and the history of information gathering by a state, and that's what I'm and that's what I'm thinking about. That's like my object of analysis. But then suddenly I've got lots of and and so it's, as a history of science, it's a history of kind of surveillance, or it's a history of knowledge formation, or a history of you know bureaucracy, da 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 da. But in my history, I've got hundreds, thousands of people who are typing up their reports mm-hmm. on these these machines mm-hmm. that if I were to just sort of say, well, that's I'm not worried about that, mm-hmm. um, would, ha- would lead to a very diminished interpretation of the thing that I say that I'm trying to study, which is the census. Like, I, I'm not allowed to not consider that instrument. At that point, I'm, what I'm saying is at that point, I'd be willing to say that the typewriter is an instrument in that mm-hmm. story. Because there, it is. It is not the object of analysis for the scholar and this hypothetical scholar in question, and for the users, it's not. They're not puzzling about it. They're not thinking about how do I build a QWERTY machine. It's there on the table every time when they get to the mor- to work in the morning, and their job. They're using it in order to I don't know produce transcriptions of tabular data, whatever it might be in this hypothetical mm-hmm. example. And at that point, yeah, it's like saying you know, what would the history of what. What would the history of science be? I don't mean the historiography of science, but I mean literally, like, what would have happened in the realms of science, engineering, technology, and medicine in the 20th century in the United States if 
typewriters didn't exist. Like, it would mm-hmm. be different than it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. But most historians of medicine don't talk about typewriters. Yeah. So I can totally, uh, I could totally believe someone, you know, of the stature of these two, of these two foundational figures saying, you know, actually, there, this, this, this is an object that really sh- deserves more. Be- and, and, and I would be willing to sort of follow them if they called it an instrument. Mm-hmm. So I think I think calling something an instrument, um, it, uh, and this isn't a bad thing, but it objectifies whatever the thing is you're talking about. Meaning mm-hmm. that it says I am comfortable drawing a dotted line around this thing and not thinking of it anymore as a complex assemblage of a bunch of different things. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to call it an object, a single object. I want to hear some more from your idea regarding this forever entanglement between technology and power, as both your previous book on ethnic classification and your current work on the typewriter show the utility of technology at different levels um, in organizing people, knowledge, mm-hmm. and language within a social or political structure. So, can you talk? About how uh, technology played an important role in power and politics, um, be it of uh, colonialism, um, capitalism, communism, or even like modernism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in the in the in my dissertation, the first book, the technology in question is taxonomy, is categorization, mm-hmm. um, and then obviously in the second book, the technology is more conventionally, excuse me, understood as a technology because it's a physical object. But um, I think that maybe a useful way to answer your question, which is a, which is a good one, comes from the first book, which is uh, when I was researching that book and when I was writing that book and when I was talking to people about the book, I I really early on picked up on a kind of unspoken desire or assumption going on. In lots of the conversations that I was having about it, in some,、um, in the in the in the sort of minds of my conversation partners, which、mm-hmm. is, for I I mean I think in the book I call it immaculate taxonomy, immaculate、mm-hmm. categorization. So this is like categorization that has no belly button, it has no mother, it was just sort of born perfect, and it's just there in this kind of. Almost like quasi-religious sense, and this this is the this is the yearning, and I think it's a I think it's a yearning, and I think it's a widespread yearning just in humanity,、mm-hmm. not just、um, sort of within the realm of research, that there that that there exists such a thing、mm-hmm. as、um, a way of categorizing the world or some part of it、mm-hmm. that is not political. By which I mean, it simply is a perfect match with the natural breakdown and seams of the world. So the、uh, I think I think I use this metaphor in the second book or this story in the second book of like、uh, the 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 Taoist butcher story, like you know the butcher whose knife never dulls,、um, and the reason that it never dulls is that he always cuts up the animal. Always at the joints and at the seams, like the knife is always passing through emptiness, and so the sort of, the you know he's never hacking through bone, by which is meant you know he's never hacking through and breaking up stuff that belongs together.、Mm-hmm. Um, he's only passing his 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 blade through spaces that already naturally preexisted,、mm-hmm. and I think there's a yearning、um, that there should exist such a thing in like. 
national censuses that you know that there must exist. Uh, maybe it hasn't. Maybe it hasn't been agitated for. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it require will require more struggle to get there. But that in whatever country we're talking about, that there can exist. You know, just one more census category, or maybe ten more census categories, or maybe the same number but differently labeled census categories. That would be a perfect apolitical, um, just reflection of actual life, and therefore. We, we will all be happy and no violence will be being done. No, no, one that, no families that should be together are broken and no one that doesn't want to be together is put together and everyone is called what they want to be called, like that idea. Uh, and, you know, and, 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 and some sort of and a bizarre twist that I was amazed by when I discovered it um, in the archives and, and, and that, in that book is ironically that's what the Chinese communists first attempted to do when they were trying to figure out who are the minorities of China. They said, we're not going to categorize anybody. We're going to let everybody categorize themselves. Mm -hmm. And so the, on that first national census in China, the fifth question was, a, was not a checkbox question. It was just a fill-in-the-blank question. What is your, the word would be nationality or maybe now it's, Ethnicity, mm -hmm. but what is your what is your minzu? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and what what happened was that um, the answers that came back were, for lack of a better word, undisciplined. What 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 ended up happening was not the answers, and there were hundreds of answers. Um, mm -hmm. These, but the but the real trick of it was is. Um, the, it, it's very clear that people had different, because they were permitted to have different definitions, they had definitions. Whatever they thought this word minzu or nationality meant, mm -hmm. they defined it in their mind however they defined it, and then they said, I am this type of that thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it, added, like, it added another dimension. Imagine if the American census said, what... What identity are you? And by the way, you can define identity however you want. That would be a, mm. a two-dimensional yeah. question. Yeah. Not like what, what, what is your ethnic, ethnicity or race? And by the way, the definition of ethnicity or race is this. Now, check, now choose a box. Mm -hmm. um, or even just tell us what you think it is with no checkbox. It would be what kind of X are you? And you get to decide what X itself means. Mm -hmm. wow. um, and so they got not only hundreds of different answers, but it's clear that ontologically, like in terms of what they th that these things were, they were different kinds of identity at the same time. And at that point, that's when the communists said, we can't do this, like we can't organize a government this way, we can't have representation represent representatives in Congress from from this many groups and also like what groups, what exactly is a group, we need to discipline this. So in this weird way, um, you know, one of the largest government, one of the largest countries on earth did an experiment of immaculate categorization. Like everyone gets to be exactly who they are mm -hmm. and define what isness is. And it was a total and unquestionable, unmitigated failure. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a lot thank for you. having me. Yeah, thank you. Check out our website, transasiapod.history, 
www.wisc.edu. Or you can find us on Twitter, at TransAsiaPod. Join us next time to learn more about TransAsia and the world.